Great day, huh? This is really a beautiful day out there. At least it looks like from in here. How cool is it to be a part of a church where on the same, the same period of time you have teenagers coming back from Brazil, you have a couple people coming back from uh, Shepherd's Ministry out in Wisconsin, and the day after uh, school supply giveaway in Appalachia. I mean, how cool is it just to be... I mean, I don't mean that as a boast. It just feels right, doesn't it? It feels real. And so uh, you, guys are, you guys are the best. Well, I'm still confused about some things. I remain confused about a number of things in life, like gravity. How does this really work, this gravity thing? Here we are on this huge planet and pretty well stuck to it. And yet, if you just do some simple math, if the circumference of the earth is about 24,000 miles and we, we go through it in 24 hours, that means we're spinning at 1,000 miles an hour. How do we stay on? And if you do a little more math, it's a little more complex, but if we're 93 million miles away from the sun, then the diameter of our loop is 186 million miles times pi divided by the number of hours in a year means that not only are we spinning at 1,000 miles an hour, but we're flying through space at 67,000 miles an hour. You never thought, now you're scared a little bit, aren't you? Whoa. What keeps us, how does the gravity, I know when I ride my motorcycle, the faster I go, the tighter I have to hold on. And I never got near 1,000. It's just, it confuses me. Another thing that confuses me is, why are women always right? Why is, why is that? I, I, I mean, I, I accept it now, at least, but I'm still confused by it. And it reminds me of Rich's line there, you know, if a, how's that go, that if a man is in the forest by himself and he says something and there's no woman around to hear him, is he still wrong? One of the things I've noticed many believers find confusing is the relationship between Old Testament law and New Testament grace. It's confusing. It can be very confusing how there's all this emphasis for so many centuries on an Old Testament law that has suddenly somehow changed in some respects and comes under the, the umbrella of New Testament grace. And it can be confusing to try to figure out how those things really work together. Well, I have really good news for us. In our passage today from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus provides a perfect answer. You want it? Let's ask him for it. Lord, we have the words on the page, and we thank you for the Bible. What we need now is your living word to come and bring the Spirit of God into the words on the page. Uh, I'm pretty sure I know what I'm going to say, and I know you know what I'm going to say. But unless you take that word, Lord, and carry it to each individual heart, mind, uh, they're just words. And so I pray, God, that during this bit of time that we have together here to open your Bible and think about it, that you would come and you would explain to every heart in ways that only you can this curious relationship between the Old and New Testament and 
law and grace because we want to get this right, Lord. We don't want to, we don't want to be fooled by something. We don't want to be caught up in anything that isn't completely from you. So we invite you to come with the next few minutes and uh, explain this to us in Jesus' name. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount is contained in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in your Bible. It's three chapters that are devoted to the words of Jesus. It's a continuous flow of the words of Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount because he went up on a mountainside to do his teaching. And we saw a couple of weeks ago that uh, he starts by nine times saying, I want you to be happy. So I want you to be happy. Happy are the, happy are the, happy are the, happy are the. The plan of God is for us to be happy. But then he also kind of surprises us with the conditions of the happiness and that he sort of flips everything on its head and is very clear in telling us that the plan of happiness from the Lord is just about opposite the plan of happiness of the world. The world offers a kind of happiness that has some pleasure attached to it and some enjoyment attached to it, but it's fleeting, it's shallow, and ultimately it just sort of evaporates, doesn't it? And the Lord says, I have a plan for happiness for you that's abiding, that's deep, that's paid for by him, and that he wants us to have it. I think uh, probably a lot of our happiness was invaded this week as we just continue to think about some of the terrible things happening to believers in Iraq. And we have to be praying. We have to be praying. Um, And I think, in a strange way, my happiness was invaded. It's been hard not to think about this this week, in uh, just the death of Robin Williams. I, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure why. I've always enjoyed his comedy, imagine that. Um, I've enjoyed his quirky nature and stuff. But I, I think the thing that got to me was this, was that he really had everything that the world has to offer for happiness. That since he was Mork, since he arrived, uh, that... People have been laughing at everything he says. Large crowds have been gathering around him. He says, movie contract after movie contract. I can't imagine the amount of money he must have. And yet, he was caught up in a cycle of depression that none of that, none of that could touch. The world's happiness couldn't make him happy. And he took his life. That's just so sad. Church, we have the answer. We have the answer. His name is Jesus. Nine times he said, I want to make you happy. Here are my conditions of happiness. Here are my plan for happiness for you. And then last week, we looked at the next portion of the Sermon on the Mount and asked the question, why? Why is everything upside down in your sermon, Lord? Why is your happiness opposite of the world? And why is the rest of what you say in this sermon upside down? And we saw that it's because he wants to turn us into salt and light. That we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He wants to do something through us that's going to require a radical transformation because we don't have the capacity on our own to be salt and to be light. We can't pull that off. And he wants to make such a radical transformation that his main sermon while he was here, everything was upside down. Everything was on its head. Because he has a work that he wants to do in and through us. Well, now the revolution begins as you continue through the passage here, and Jesus dares to actually revolutionize the law of Moses by saying, well, you've heard it said, but I say this. You've heard it said, but I say this. You've heard it said, but I say this. 
And as a rabbi, Jesus was perfectly entitled to teach from the law. In fact, that was the expectation, that you're a rabbi, so teach us the law. But the law, as you've seen in Scripture, always had to be taught according to the quote-unquote tradition of the elders. That you could expound on the law, of course, that's what rabbis do, but you have to teach along party lines. Don't be coloring outside the lines. Jesus showed up and said, lines? There are lines? Who knew there were lines? He's the personification of the law. He's the personification of God's heart. And he comes and he turns everything on its head. And one of the things about Jesus that fascinated people was what? That he taught not as their own, but he taught as one who had what? Authority. That there was something inherent in the words of Jesus that just had a compelling impact on people. Have you had that experience with the Lord? There's something about a word that's spoken from his word, or you're reading the word and it just lands, yeah? It has an authority in and of itself. It's not an authority that we assign to it. It's an authority, the word of God that just comes to us. You know, religion, and by religion, I think you know what I mean, the stuff that men make up in the absence of God, while they're waiting for him to show up, religion only has authority that we assign to it. It has no essential inherent authority. We have to agree with it. All right, those are the rules. I get it. Okay, I will walk in step. I will keep the rules. I will feel badly when I don't keep the rules, etc., etc., right? But you have to agree to that. What you don't have to agree with are the words of Jesus. But they're true. And they come with their own authority. And some of you have had that experience, as I have had many times, when the Lord just came and changed my mind because of his authority that's in his word. And he came and said, you have heard it said, you think, but I say. That's what's happening here in this passage. In this passage when he, uh, he just begins by saying this in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 17. It says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That is so key. I haven't come to abolish them as though they had no value. But I've come to fulfill them. I have come, he said, to do something with that. And I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus is accomplishing something with the law for us. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses, this is so key, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not what you've been hearing, he said. It's not what religion has been teaching you. He said, I've come to do something with the law that's never been done before, will never be done again, because I'm the only one who could do it. And then he talks about five well-known areas of the law of Moses in the rest of the uh, chapter, uh, followed by one of his own. He says, you've heard it said, don't murder. Yes, you've heard it said, but I say, when you become angry enough with a person and unforgiving toward them, that you hold them in contempt. 
then you've already murdered them and are in danger of the fires of hell. Ouch. And then he says adultery. He says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say, if a, if a man looks at a woman with lust in his eyes, he commits adultery with her in his heart. It's already done. And then he says, you say that if a man wants to release his wife through a certificate of divorce, as the law of Moses has provided, you can do that, but I say this. He says, when you do that, when, when you do that, you break a covenant. You break a covenant. And he talks about oaths. You've heard that you're supposed to keep your oaths. And he said, but I tell you, don't make oaths. He says, your yes should be yes, and your no should be no. Our speech should be simple and true at its surface. Not spinning things with words that are true, but connected together, they give a little different impression. Hello? He talked about retribution. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say if somebody comes and smacks you on the jaw, you turn your face and say, you missed a spot. Don't retaliate. And then he throws in one for, of his own. He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. When you get to the end of this thing, he throws in one more verse, just in case his listeners were not agitated or confused enough by now. He throws in verse 48. And by the way, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, who besides me wants to go, are you kidding me? <laughs> you have got to be kidding me. I mean, how many of these things have we broken today? <laughs> are you kidding me? And he's putting us in a desperate position here. This was a revolutionary new teaching, not what they were used to. Jesus, as I said, had this onboard authority that when he comes and says this stuff, it's true, and we need to pay attention and get to the core of what it means. And what he's saying is, I, I know that you have heard this this way over and over again, but he's saying, everything is different now. Now that I'm here, now that Jesus, now that I'm here, he says, everything is going to be different from here on out. You might be wondering, well, why is why is it different now? Why is the law, the nature of the law, changed? What's changed? How is it different now? Isn't, aren't those your questions? Say yes, or I'll begin again. Okay. The best illustration I can, I can think of, and the way of saying this is, if you'll have it, I believe that Jesus was consummating the law. Now, when a marriage is consummated, typically we, we're talking about the sexual thing, but I want you to think about the intimacy thing, that there's intimacy. Just get sex out of your mind for a minute if you can. And it's the intimacy. It's the blending of these two people together into one new reality, right? That's the consummation. And I think in a very real sense, when Jesus came, he consummated the law. He blended the, the Father's love for us 
by fulfilling every bit of the law for us so that something new was made. Something new was made. And, uh, you know, as a, as a marriage is consummated, things change. I want you to think about it this way. The rules, the rules for an engagement period are different than the rules of marriage, aren't they? The rules for an engagement period, they're rules. And if you break them, this thing could be over, right? I mean, there's the rule of exclusivity. We're saying, okay, we're going to get married, and uh, we're it. We're not free to date. So you can't say, yeah, I don't think I want to do that. I'm going to go out with my old girlfriend. You can't say that, can you? You're breaking a rule when you do that. And there are other rules of the engagement period that, you know what, are off once you're married. What? They're off. Because a marriage is not a relationship of rules. A marriage is a covenant relationship. Is that making any sense? It's fulfilled in the marriage. What does that mean? You're free to run around? Absolutely not. In fact, the standard is now higher. Not only can you not go out and date somebody else, you can't even think about them. But in a healthy marriage, the attraction is so strong, the friendship is so deep, that there's a natural obedience to what used to be rules. Now there's a natural obedience to the rules, even at a higher level. So it's the relationship that occurs that is a fulfillment of the engagement. The law, the Old Testament law, were the rules of the engagement, getting us ready for Christ. Now that we have Christ, there is a natural obedience that flows from the relationship with God through Son Jesus Christ that doesn't require us to be supervised by the law. Does that make sense? And Jesus said all this about these, these unkeepable, you know, I say, you've heard it said, but I say this, to do what? To drive us into relationship with Him. When I read the Sermon on the Mount and I go, Oi vey, I suck at all of this. I am driven to the cross. I'm driven to say, Lord, I need to live in relationship with you, and I need you to be the one who keeps the law for me. And I need to get close to you and have dynamic relationship with you so that there's a natural obedience to the purpose and the spirit of the law rather than a preoccupation with the letter of the law. Does that make sense? The law was meant to show us our need of a relationship with Christ. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn back to Galatians, which is, for those of you who are newer, back toward the back. Galatians chapter 3. Bless you. Galatians chapter 3. And in this whole book, Paul's trying to rescue these Galatians who, you know, they met Christ, and they were so excited and living in the joy of a relationship with Christ. And these law people came in and go, you're doing it wrong. Unless you keep the law, you're not really saved. And Paul's saying, ignore them. Ignore them. They're wrong. And so in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, he says, So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. I mean, that's pretty clear, isn't it? So the law was put in charge to do what? To lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. We're not justified by keeping the law. We're justified by faith in the one who kept the law for us and keeps the law for us. And then verse 25, Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. 
Now that faith has come, we have what? We have a relationship with God through His Son Jesus and the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit. And in this context, it says we're no longer under the supervision of the law. Has the law lost its importance? No. It camps central in the the nature of our relationship with God, but we observe it as a natural obedience of love rather than a preoccupation with failure. Does that help? So, just as if a person in a marriage is finding themselves constantly, their mind is constantly wandering, and I wonder what it would be like with this person, I wonder if it would be like with that person, and they're being unfaithful in their mind to the covenant of their marriage. I don't think that that means that that person is necessarily, you know, just just this bad moral character. What, What I think that says more than anything else is that there's something wrong in the relationship of the marriage. There's something wrong in the relationship of the marriage, guys. If your mind is constantly wandering, there's something wrong. Remember when she had your full attention? Remember when you couldn't think of anybody else? Don't look at me in that tone of voice. You did. You couldn't wait to get off work. And, you know. Come on, you guys. You know what I'm talking about. You want that. You want that back. And you can have it. You can still have it. After four freaking decades of marriage, you can still have that. But you've got to claim it. You've got to go get it. You've got to celebrate it. So just as that's true, I think if a person is struggling habitually with an area of behavior that seems clear to them as sin and less than God's plan for them, I wouldn't say, oh yeah, you're just such a bad person. I wouldn't say that at all. I mean, that's a given, right? (laughs) Can we just talk? (laughs) That's kind of a given. That's why we're in this predicament. But what it says is what's missing in the relationship with Jesus You want that back. I know the areas of my life with which I still struggle. I don't condemn myself for it. I fight that because the Bible says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I know I'm in Christ Jesus. I fight that. But what I constantly ask myself is, Lord, what's missing that I would settle for that instead of more of you? So once the relationship is in place, the law is no longer needed. You know, I, I realize I live, I guess, under some law of exclusivity. I mean, Karen's the only one. I get that. But I don't look at my watch, you know, when I'm getting ready to go home and go, ah, oh, crap, i got to go home tonight because of the rule. <laughs> like to go out and have some beers with my buddies or whatever, but, you know, the ball and chain, you know. It's just a, it's ridiculous. Something's wrong there. I live in eager anticipation of what tonight might be like. (laughs) Colossians chapter 2. Let me give you another one from the scriptures. Colossians chapter 2, a little further back toward the back. Verse 13. When you were dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. Remember that? Nasty stuff. God made you alive with Christ. God made you alive. You didn't make yourself alive. God made you alive when you were dead. You just turned to Him 
in your death. And he made you alive. That's what the Bible, I'm just reading the Bible here. He forgave us all our sins. Oh, it gets better. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. By the cross of Jesus Christ. The law is perfectly fulfilled, and it is snatched out of the hands of the enemy who constantly tries to condemn you with it. He says, it goes on, verse 16, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you. Do not let anyone judge you. It says, by what you eat or drink. You know, the rule pe- rules people. Don't, don't, don't play. You don't have to accept their judgment, do you? Or with regard to a religious festival, by how religious you are, whether you go to church or not, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Don't let people judge you by that. So these, this is, the, this is the best part. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The law is the shadow. Jesus is the light. Book of Galatians, he says over and over again, why would you want to go back into the shadow when you can have the liberty of the light? So the laws pertaining in the, the Sermon on the Mount, the laws pertaining to murder and adultery and divorce and retribution, they're no longer necessary in the context of a consummated relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the relationship with him that inspires a natural obedience to the spirit of the law rather than an inconsistent obedience out of fear of breaking the letter of the law. And it doesn't mean at all that we're free to do all those things. It means we're free to let Jesus change us to not want to do all those things and to live from a new space. The behavioral standard, as you can see, is actually higher. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I say, forget about that. When you're walking with me, you turn the other cheek. That's higher. There's only one way to get that. And that's in the context of the work that God does within us by his word and his spirit, which is called relationship with him. So the whole purpose, I think, of the revolutionary teachings of the Sermon on the Mount is to draw us into living relationship with Jesus. Because did you get toward, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus looks at the person and says, depart from me, I never what? I never knew you. They were saying, but we did all this stuff. He said, yeah, but I never knew you. So these revolutionary teachings are, are just really, I, I believe, designed to drive us to an understanding of our radical need for Christ and, and how poor in spirit we really are by nature. But I think in order to get there, to that dynamic power, we must first be broken of the human religious applications. And this is hard for some people. Some people, some of you in here, you were fetched up by well-meaning people who conveyed Christianity to you is this new set of rules that you had to follow. Christianity is the recognition that we can't follow rules and we need a Savior. And that's hard for some of you to get free from, I mean truly free from, because it's easier to be religious than it is to be spiritual. It's easier to be religious because you know what all the rules are, right? And you can keep yourself happy by your level of observance of those rules. 
relationship with Christ is a mystical thing. Sometimes even a moving target, isn't it? I wouldn't have it any other way. So the answer to the question is simply this. While the law of the Old Testament was meant to serve as rules of courtship, Jesus has fully consummated the law now, so we live in the glory of that relationship with him. So I've been imagining this picture. This isn't a vision from the Lord. It's not in that place that I sometimes hear from the Lord. It's just a picture that I've been imagining to illustrate this whole thing. And it's simply this, that since seven times in the New Testament the church is referred to as the bride of Christ, so we are we're the bride of Christ, I want you to picture with me a wedding. Only in this wedding, uh, God himself, God the Father, is the officiant. And his son, Jesus Christ, is the bridegroom. And standing here is the church. Is you, Pat. You, Sean. You, Rich. You, Valerie. You, Josie. That's who's standing here. Individually and collectively. You got the picture? And there comes a point in this service and this imagination of mine where God the Father looks to his son and says, Son, do you take this church to be your bride? Do you take on full responsibility for this church in being the consummation of the law for them and to forgive them of every and any sin they will ever commit? And he says, I do. I love them that much. And then he turns to the church and he says, And you, church, take my son to be your savior, to be the perfect and complete fulfillment of my law and the forgiver of every sin you will ever commit. And the church says, And God the Father stands there and says, in accordance with the laws of the state of Moses, and by the authority vested in me as God, I now pronounce you Bride and Christ. That's what I think that means. That's what I think that means. And everything changes. Engagement is over. It's time for the banquet. Father, we just love you this morning and bow before you. We ask for your presence uh, to come and do the things that you have in mind to do with us. These issues are still confusing to us, Lord. We've worked so hard on developing this pattern of trying to please you from our own strength. It's hard to break, Lord. And so I just pray the power of the Holy Spirit to come in the full measure of your grace for us as sinners saved by this grace. And I pray, Lord, that you would draw us in each one individually and even collectively as a church into a dynamic relationship with you through your word and the power of your Holy Spirit so that a natural obedience could flow from that relationship, Lord, so that we could be set free 
from these devilish things that sometimes control us. They call our names, but just to hear you call our names more brightly, more lovingly, Lord. Would you come into this place today? We invite you to come, Lord. We invite you to come and do whatever you want to do. And I want to invite you to come and to, to touch anybody here who is here today who's, who's just saying, I've never said I do. I've never heard it that way. I've, I, I want to now. I want to say I do. I want to say yes. I want to enter into a relationship through this one who has done all this for me. And I pray also, Father, for those who are wanting to say I do again, just want like a renewal of their vows, just to recognize that sometimes things can wind down. And I just pray for them, Father. I pray that your Holy Spirit would just so lovingly call them into renewal with you, Lord God. Thank you that's even possible, Lord. Thank you that you love us, no matter how near or far we are from you, Lord. I just invite the presence, power, ministry of the Holy Spirit into this room. Heal our sick, Lord. Counsel our troubled. Feed our hungry. God, just do the things that I believe you, you want to do in a kingdom sense, Lord. So come, Lord. You know, I'm just wondering, you guys, if uh, there's some here today who just because maybe of the things the Lord has been speaking to your heart as we've been going on here today, that you're at a place where you say, I do want to say, I do. I want that. I'm ready for that. And maybe some of you are here where you're going, I, I want to say, I do again. I want, to, I want it back. If you're a person here today who maybe would fit into either of those categories, you just want to turn to the Lord and say, I do. I'm just going to ask you to stand right where you are so I can pray for you. So we can pray for you. Just stand right where you are if that's stirring inside of you.